It's been said many times in many places that freedom is a road seldom traveled by the multitude. But we invite you to join us. Welcome to the Folding Chair Podcast, powered by the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. To learn more about the Arkansas Public Policy Panel, go to arpanel.org. Join us for Season 3, Episode 3, We Are Each Other's Harvest, featuring Shondrea Murphy Washington. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Folding Chair Podcast, powered by the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. I'm your host, Osiris Bali, and the Folding Chair Podcast is inspired by a quote from one of our great leaders in Black history, in American history, Shirley Chisholm. She said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. So today at our table, we have Shondrea Murphy Washington. Hey, how you doing? I am doing well and excited to be here. How are you today? Nobody ever asks me that. I'm, I'm great. I'm blessed. <laughs> Uh, just a quick, you know what I'm saying, tidbit from, uh, about you, I'm going to share with the people. Um, I'm just going to read down a, a little bit of the bio that I got. Shondrea Murphy Washington is an Arkansas-based youth development activist. She's a graduate from University of Arkansas at Little Rock, where she received a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology and a certification in nonprofit management. She received a Master of Public Service from the Clinton School of Public Service, where her work focused on the career and social emotional development of African-American youth in Central Arkansas region. She is a published poet and essayist with pieces featured in the Misguided Magazine for Millennials, Rise Up Review, IO Literary Journal, and she serves as the program assistant for the African-American Policy Forum. Ladies and gentlemen, Shandrea Murphy Washington. So, <laughs> hey, if I missed anything in your bio that, that I should say, I, I know we're going to get to know a little bit more about you uh, when we start the book or the interview, but right now, are you excited to play uh, our favorite game in season three, pick six? I am. I'm excited to see what you got to throw at me today. Okay. Hey, no, we just, uh, <laughs> we, we just go for the gusto every time we uh, do pick six. So... Question one on pick six, name a personal hero of yours who is not related to you. Oh, hmm. A personal hero of mine who's not related to me. Or we, we ain't gotta be, you know, so strict on the word hero. It's just somebody you admire. I mean, we can do that too as well. Okay. Um. Definitely right now that since I've joined the African-American Policy Forum, like Kimberly Crenshaw is definitely, she's been such an inspiration in my life, even prior to joining that the team, just finding out about her and all the work that she does and gets involved in to ensure, you know, racial justice happens in this country. So definitely Kimberly Crenshaw for that one. All right. That's not a bad one. All right. <laughs> Question number two, finish this phrase. Voting is. Everything. <laughs> All right. Voting is everything, especially during these times where 
they're trying to make it seem like our voting power is less than what it is to keep us from voting. And as long as we think that they, that our voice and our votes don't matter, we're not going to ever have the representation and resources that we need. So I would definitely say voting is everything. And I agree with you 100%. Representation matters. And I tell people all the time, uh, voting is like my favorite form of nonviolent protest. Mm. So, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> hey, we got to vote, vote. Voting is everything. And 2022 is a very pivotal year. But we're going to move on. I'm not going to I'm not going to run on that tangent. <laughs> uh, question number three, pick six. Name a movie that you think would be a good musical. Oh, <laughs> this is hard. You got the hard questions. <laughs> Hey. Dang, a movie that would be a good music. All of most of the movies that I like are musicals because every time I think of a movie, I just think of the five heartbeats. And to me, that is a musical. <laughs> it is really. It really is. <laughs> hey, five heartbeats is a musical. I will accept that answer because I, I don't I don't know if most people most people consider that a musical or not. But when I think about Robert Townsend. Mm -hmm. balling up all that paper balls and that little girl finding them and they singing in the bedroom <laughs> yes that's that's a straight up musical uh classical classic musical scene and so it uh, is five heartbeats should be a musical maybe they should take that to uh what broadway or something Ooh, I, I pay for that i would uh, definitely pay for that <laughs> already well you heard it first you know what i'm saying you heard it first here five big heartbeats musical coming soon all right <laughs> All right, number four, pick six. What advice would you give to your 16-year-old self? Ooh, I was just having a conversation with a group of folks about this not too long ago about my 14-year-old self. And I feel like I give my 16-year-old self the same advice to just mm -hmm. calm down and believe that everything will be okay because it all works out in the end. And also, I would tell my 16-year-old self to not internalize the voices that are telling me that I'm too much or that I need to tone down who I am, because who I am at 16 is exactly who gets me to where I am at 31. I like that advice. I could tell you a poet. And uh, <laughs> I can tell you probably done some motivational speaking too. So if, if, I'm if, getting into that now. So <laughs> okay, I can hear it. I can hear it. I mean, you know, what I'm saying powerful lessons right there. And I, I gotta say, when you said that, calm down. I used to do a, a class at the Boys and Girls Club. Yeah, the Boys and Girls Club called Passport to Manhood, where I worked with young men. Uh, you know, what I'm saying between the ages 12, 17. And one of the things in that class, I always told him, I said, you got to learn how to relax because, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying, you, you're young and you get anxious, you get excited and you just got to calm down sometimes and relax so that you can make these decisions, man, that affect you for the rest of your life. So, yeah, I definitely agree. But uh, moving forward, we're almost done with this. All right. Uh, question number five, the pick six. What's on your TikTok channel? And if you don't have one, what would your TikTok channel be about? Like, what do I post or what is on my For You page? Because those are different things. <laughs> see, see, I don't even, I'm not even on TikTok, really. I got a job TikTok. 
So I don't really know what the for you is, but uh, mm. <laughs> um, yeah, well, just break it down for me, uh, your personal TikTok page about whatever you would like to post about, or cause I'm not even sure, what, I, I understand the differences in the two. <laughs> well, on my page, I honestly, I, I think I may have just made my third post in maybe having the, the year that I've had TikTok. I've maybe just made my third post in the only thing that I have on there is like, I, I would say these stitches or like, no, they're effects, like little filters and stuff that they put on you. And like, it's like music playing in the background. It's super corny and super lame, but I really want to get involved in like making actual videos. I just don't have the confidence to edit and post stuff like that. Yeah. And what I would like to talk about is positive parenting, black history mm -hmm. um and the importance of healing and wellness when it comes to movement work oh wow yeah 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 i agree with I, that's you know you need to get started on your tiktok page with that, uh, <laughs> that's all needed it's all needed yeah we, we got a tiktok page at the job that i run and uh it's basically just a page for civic engagement and information and we only got about six videos up Mm. And honestly, I work with the youth on it and they tell me what to do and how to post it. And so I like, that's why you threw me off with the for you page and the personal page. <laughs> uh, we only got one page and that's just all job related, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to start one in 2020. So I'm going to start up my own personal TikTok page. So I yeah, I'm hoping I can get my daughter to help me <laughs> with my, with my TikTok, TikTok page because Bria is way better than me at all things social media at 10, which is sad. <laughs> You got an in-home assistant, so take advantage of it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You pay the bills and she helped you with the social media. That's, that's a fair exchange right there. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's our second to last. So we get to our last question. Pick six. All right. This, this might tell a little bit about who you are, but we're going to ask you anyway. Name a song that reminds you of high school. Oh man. <laughs> okay. Well, don't don't judge me, but like what immediately came to mind was Nucky If You Buck. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but man. it seemed like that was the theme of my high school. <laughs> oh man. Uh who Crime Mob, I believe that. Crime Mob. <laughs> okay. We know you was. We know you was getting crunk, you know what I'm saying, back in high school then. All right. <laughs> it wasn't me. I, I was just an onlooker. I was just an onlooker. <laughs> hey, you know what I'm saying? Playing the sideline. It's all good. It's all good. Enough gives you buck. That is a, uh, that's movement music. Uh, it definitely uh, in, is. <laughs> in, in our culture. So, uh, so, well, congratulations. You completed the pick six. Great answers, too, man. Uh, I like these answers right here. We're going to have a good time on this interjective. All right. <laughs> so, Chandria Murphy Washington, you know what I'm saying? We, I went through a short bio uh, that I read off about you, but just to provide a little bit more background for people who don't know you and people listening to you for the first time. Tell me more about who you are and, you know, say just your upbringing and everything. Okay, so I was born in Pine Bluff, moved to Little Rock about, I think I was about 
going on seven years old. So like, I don't really have a whole lot of memory of my life down there outside of going to elementary school, like my first grade year. And not really having the best time in that because of one of my teachers. But mm. <laughs> outside of that, um, let's see, moved to Little Rock, went to Daisy Bates Elementary, Fuller Middle School, Mills High School, um, raised primarily with my mom and my grandmother. My grandmother was like our biggest support system. And because my mom is disabled and so is my sister. So we had to like provide around the clock care for them my entire life. So a lot of my life has been just dedicated to caring for others. And I mm -hmm. like to think that coming up, having to care for somebody's well-being led me to want to care for my community's well-being mm -hmm. and like my community just became an extension of my family and the way that I care about people and let's see I'm trying to think what else about me you you mentioned I went to you uh you learned that you a little rock now I guess they're fancy so <laughs> <laughs> I, still call them, I still call them Eula, but that's, right. that's, that's <laughs> like your mama named you Eula I'm gonna call you you <laughs> Oh, it's gonna take a while. But um, so yeah, uh, went to Euler, got my degree in anthropology. But before that, I had started going for psychology, and I lost one of my best friends in a car accident. And so I took some time off of school after that, and then shortly after that, I had my daughter. So I had to take like a big hiatus before I was able to go back to school and get my degrees. But that actually turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me because if I would have just kept going at the pace that I was going, I wouldn't have the understand or I wouldn't have had the understanding of who I wanted to be by the time I went back. And so I would have been stuck in a career that I didn't like. I wouldn't have had the understanding of my community and my people that I got later on. And that really did end up being the best thing that ever happened to me. And I know a lot of people often look at setbacks as, you know, dreams wasted and time wasted, but just looking back on how that time of my life contributed to how I grew as a mom, as a person, and just as a person who cares about Black liberation and the freedom of my people, I needed to go through that struggle. Mm -hmm. So went to um, went back to Euler, got my degree in anthropology, which a lot of people thought was going to be a struggle for me because anthropology isn't typically a field that a lot of Black people get into, particularly not in the South. Right, right. And so um, I had got a lot of pushback from that from my family at one point because they were like, what you going to do with this white folks degree? And I was like, I don't know, but I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. So I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> and that foundation in anthropology helped me to really understand theory and human behavior and why people make the decisions that they make based off of like generational and societal pressure and tradition and being grounded in that research background but also anthropology you know they focus on 
you letting the community tell you who they are and what they need and you not coming in as the person who knows everything. That was a really big tenet of anthropology at my school. And I say at my school because it's not like that everywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, that really that really helped me to understand how I needed to approach the work that I was doing in life and how I needed to go about understanding people and not just asserting my point of view of who I think people are and what I think people should be doing. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago, I served as a, a family engagement VISTA at our house for a year following that. And that was also a great experience because up until that point, I had never really understood the complexity of being unsheltered. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand the need for wraparound services that they had and the struggles that you know people who are coming out of incarceration have with understanding computer literacy or what it's like getting your child into a daycare when you don't even have a home to live in or what it's like you know getting your child assigned to a school when you're you're not sheltered and being in that environment really gave me an understanding of you know the needs that they had how they wanted to be communicated with the hopes and ambitions that they had and the joy that they were still able to feel even in their circumstances and I feel like I'm just talking on and on, but <laughs> no, 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 you're good, you're good. I mean, you know, we, we wanted to know know more about, you know what I'm saying, uh, why you chose that field of anthropology and, you know what I'm saying, what led you to the work that you're doing today. And so it sounds like to me, I mean, my next question that I was gonna ask you basically was uh, what inspired you to work with the youth, but I kind of got a general idea of that now, but if you still like want to answer that, like what, what inspired you to, to do work that's focused on youth? Oh, what inspired me to do that is to, I, I wanted to be the person that I needed when I was growing up because I didn't have a lot of guidance. Um, growing up in a home where I was the caregiver for my parents, I just had to figure a lot of things out and do a lot of trial and error, which is why I said earlier, I would have told my 16 year old self to just calm down and that it all works out because I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't, (laughs) I didn't even know if I would make it out of my teenage years or make it to see adulthood because life was just that stressful. And through all that time, I just always wished that somebody could see me or hear me and like, look at me and see that I'm in pain and want to do something about that. And as I got older and I went through different programs myself and saw like the the generational, I'm trying to figure out a good way to put it. There was like generational differences in between the people providing the the care in youth programs and the youth who were in the programs. And I felt like there was this very, you just do what we say kind of thing going on in programs that wasn't helpful at all for me and that I didn't think would be helpful for other kids either. So uh, when I was getting my nonprofit management certification at Euler, I started 
I did an intern with this uh, internship with the city of Little Rock in the Department of Community Programs. And I got into that internship right around the time the summer youth employment opportunity was getting ready to start off. And um, seeing like I got to go through evaluations from the previous year and just understand the different experiences that the kids were having and then I also got to develop the uh, career crash course that year, which taught youth soft skills. And that was the first year that we were able to run that program and being able to tailor programming to kids that really needed it. And not only that, but had expressed a need to have more of a voice in the programming that they received really motivated me to just stick with that. I was like, I'm good at this. I, I really care about what these kids are going through and that they have a voice. And I, I was in a position to where I could uplift their voices and say, hey, these are the things that they're expressing. These are how these kids are being made to feel. And I just continued on from there, working to create different avenues for youth to feel hurt yeah and I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh you worked with uh the city and with the community programs but uh my next question you know so i'm just you know just kind of just thinking about the climate right now in little rock and there's a lot of talk about you know saying of course this is an election year and i always kind of feel like people try to take advantage of what's going on in the community to, to use it as a platform or while they are running for office. Mm -hmm. And uh, and sometimes they don't really want to offer solutions, more criticisms, more than anything. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I was just having a conversation uh, yesterday about things that I think we could do for the youth and young adults to help curb like some of the crime and the violence in the city. Because it's not, uh, like I mentioned the summer employment program through the city of Little Rock, which I think is a great thing. Um, but I think we get to the point now where we realizing that just summer employment alone is not enough for, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying, giving them something productive to do for those, you know, two and a half months or whatever. And right. what ways we could, you know what I'm saying, expand that program to do something year round and what other things that we could do to interest you know, uh, people that are between the ages of 16 and 24 to give them a productive outlet or, you know what I'm saying, possibly a way to a career path or, you know what I'm saying, employment. I mean, do you have any ideas that you feel like, you know, the city right now is wanting to go into a state of emergency and a lot of the, uh, the crime and the violence is unfortunately focused on young black youth and young younger people what is what do you think are some solutions that we could present to the city right now to like you know say say hey it's not all about giving the police endless overtime and tons of money that's not how you combat crime you, you combat crime with presenting more opportunities especially economically and creatively do you have any suggestions that you think would uh, work as somebody that uh actually worked in community programs Oh man. So <laughs> my my biggest recommendation is taking a lot of the bureaucracy out of things that 
happen with the city because a lot of times things can't get done because like you said people are trying to win elections and they want their projects to go through or they want their ideas to be heard and so ideas that could come to fruition that would actually cause community improvement get pushed by the wayside for people who just care about their political power and I agree that the summer youth employment opportunity is great as it is for providing opportunities for those six to eight weeks that, you know, they get that opportunity. <sighs> there are needs for year-round services yeah. and definitely services that focus on healing because a lot of people, a lot of these kids that are in these programs, whether they are have a uh, common contact with the juvenile justice system or not, they're going through trauma. Mm -hmm. It's traumatic when your parents can't pay bills. Mm -hmm. It's traumatic when your neighbor's shooting. <laughs> it's traumatic. You know, we're living in the middle of a pandemic and a lot of people don't even have the resources that they need. That's trauma. Mm -hmm. So if we're not focusing on giving the youth and young adults at least an outlet to voice their concerns and voice the things that are needed in their community so that they can begin to heal, we're already even on the most basic level, not doing anything. Um, when it comes to economic things, I think that um, things like the Little Rock Freedom Fund, I would love for that to be modeled into something that was kind of like a feeding program or something where if you are a family and you have needs for groceries or something, I wish that there was a fund set up that people could access, you know, to get those funds. Like you're, you have the money to pay your light bills. You know, you have money to put groceries in your car, you know, I mean, not groceries in your car, but groceries in your refrigerator, you know, and this cuts down on a lot of crime when people have access to the resources they need. One idea that um, me and Ben had recently was to put a community refrigerator oh, and yeah. pantry somewhere um, in, in one of the black areas in Little Rock that need access to those types of services, like little things like that, mm -hmm. giving people something because if you're worried about your safety, if you're worried about what you're going to eat, if you're worried about, you know, where you're going to lay your head, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to do anything. And I feel like by focusing on um, increasing the police presence, that is the lead, like police don't prevent crime. They're not there to prevent anything. They get there after the fact. And if you're criminalizing all of these areas, then you're adding to the crime. If you're criminalizing activity just by criminalizing folks for being outside and not having anything to do, you didn't give them anything to do. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. You know, we can't, uh, the solution to crime is not going around manufacturing more crime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, saying we have uh, a lot of times, you know, these people run on platforms where. First thing they want to say is tough on crime, and that appeals to a lot of people because that's a phrase that they've heard in the past. We're not going to play with people. Uh, we just going to lock them up when they mess up. And, you know, people aren't messing up a lot of times. A lot of times people just are in difficult circumstances. A lot mm -hmm. of times our youth, they are, you know what I'm saying, like they outside because they don't have nothing else to do. I, I, I feel bad for them sometimes. I think about some of the opportunities I had as a teenager and what I got to do, even as a young adult, 
and they don't have those same opportunities and places to go. And so what do you see? You might see them all crowded in the parking lot at a gas station or mm -hmm. tailgating each other or just hanging out wherever they can, you know what I'm saying? And so we can't uh we can't penalize them for being kids and doing things that we did, you know what I'm saying? Like we just forgot totally. But I will say this also, uh, I love the idea you talked about you and Ben had of putting the community pantry or refrigerator. I've seen how that has blessed other cities and how mm -hmm. that's been a real a big to uh to help with the food insecurities that, that a lot of these places have in predominantly black communities. And it's a wonderful thing. And I would love to see that in Little Rock because I've seen it work in places in the East Coast and in the Midwest. Uh, and, and since you mentioned it, uh, I know that, you know, so you mentioned to me earlier that you have a consulting firm you, with you and your husband, Ben. Can you please tell me more about uh, what the consulting firm is about and how that's going to be a resource in the community here? Yeah, so when we first got it started, um, the idea was just to be helpers within our community because both of us through the work that we did in our anthropology and nonprofit programs and and the clinton schools that like we literally both have all the same degree <laughs> and the work that we did like we did consulting we had to do consulting as a part of our degrees so we worked with different nonprofits some who serve youth some who like had clients who had special needs you know we just have always been we've always made ourselves available to people in the community who are looking to improve people's quality of life mm -hmm. and so we really got it started because we just wanted people to have access to us you know it was it when we were in school it was easy for you know a professor to link us up with somebody and know you know the needs that a place had because they served on the board but if we're not plugged into that you know we don't have we can't be helpful and so we just decided that um, after all the work that we had done, like we we know a lot of the needs that people have here because of the populations that we've had to serve. And so we it's Murphy Washington Consulting is the name of it that we have for now because everything else that we wanted to do that was more kind of pan-African center like Sankofa or Ashe, like all of those were gone. So I was like, we gonna, we gotta get this started. We gotta start doing some work. It's gonna be Murphy Washington for now. <laughs> hey, yeah, but I, I, I ain't mad at Ashe or Sankofa either, but you know, I ain't mad, but go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> you're fine, you're fine. And so um, we started out um, just doing like business proposals for small businesses trying to get off of the ground and looking to do outreach to expand their business and expand their networking. So started with those. Um, ben has done some grant writing and some data for different organizations. And now we're trying to move into more of the training of people who work with youth and more of the facilitation aspect. So using um, the emergent strategy philosophy that I've been reading up on to help different nonprofits, particularly youth serving nonprofits and family serving nonprofits, help them to um, 
strategize ways that they can be more effective and make sure that the programming that they're offering is culturally responsive and that they really are getting to the needs that are being expressed by the people that they serve. And so we've also um, recently launched uh, the, the Use Your Words Writing for Social Justice workshop series, which I actually developed when I was getting my master's and I was writing it with y'all, I wanna say, because y'all were my capstone partners. And I had gone to some of the, um, the social change, the youth social change coalition that, that y'all have. Mm -hmm. And it was like all the, the kids that were there doing poetry, talking about policy and all that stuff. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And this needs to be replicated <laughs> in some way. And so I started working to develop kind of like an intersectional and black feminist um, frame, like that's the frameworks that we use to like use film to talk about some of the social justice issues that are happening in the community with the youth. And I had intended for it to be something that served youth between 12 and 18. Mm -hmm. But by the time that I launched it, COVID was here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I had to move it from a program that was gonna be in-person to a virtual program. And that actually allowed me to make it more intergenerational and so now we meet on Saturdays and we watch Black feminist documentaries and we talk about how those things that they're discussing in those films are re re related to the things that we face in our communities. And then we use that to write out our, and tell our stories. It's really about storytelling and using storytelling to influence policy and influence change within your communities. I like that. I like that. Uh, so we, we definitely going to have to make sure we give a shout out to where people can get in contact with you uh, with Murphy Washington Consulting Firm and use your words. I, I didn't I, I know I, I heard about it. And, uh, you know, saying that's one of the things that we've been struggling to find is things that the youth could do during this pandemic, because a lot of things have shifted going virtual. And so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, these opportunities to meet with groups virtually and have these uh, interactive discussions and the, like you said a big key part of that is storytelling and you know saying storytelling is really one of the new ways that uh we've been getting real creative and innovative with online like i said we got a tiktok page where mm -hmm. the same post that you were coming to and seeing that the uh, arkansas youth coalition for social change meetings they went in they took their poetry and turned it into um into basically performative uh, performative pieces to advocate for policy during a legislative wow. session. And we got a lot of good, great feedback. We did one for the Crown Act. We did one for um, for hate crime bill. Uh, we did one for, uh, you know, no more cash bail and juvenile fines and fees. And so it was a great way to see how the youth could, you know, say, take their creativity and become, you know what I'm saying, uh, advocates for policy and learning about policy making and, and using that as their platform uh, with their arts, you know, so helping to liberate people. So we definitely got to, we definitely got to at least uh, partner up and, you know what I'm saying, um, collaborate with some of this youth work because it sounds so great what y'all are doing uh, with the Use Your Words workshops. And so um, just, just moving forward, 
you know what I'm saying? I was glad to see, you know what I'm saying? You mentioned Kimberly Crenshaw uh, when we were playing the game pick six. And, you know what I'm saying? I was glad to see that you're with the African-American Policy Forum now as a program assistant. And so I just wanted to know, you know what I'm saying? Let the listeners know like a little bit about this organization and you know saying uh what the, what kind of work that that's going on that's very instrumental in you know saying providing the resources in the black community and information and, and uh, promoting change in our communities yes of course so the african-american policy forum is a social justice think tank that was founded by kimberly crenshaw who is a Black feminist legal scholar, critical race theorist, uh, coined the term intersectionality. And man, we do so, so much. I mean, we have our... We have our Truth Be Told campaign right now that's really taken off, especially with these concerted attacks against any kind of anti yeah, any kind of anti-racist education, there any kind of talk about gender, sexuality. Ever since that got started with the equity gag order that was put out by Trump. The truth be told, the truth be told campaign has been on top of bringing experts from all over the country, from all different fields together, mm-hmm. to basically stand against the retrenchment that's all, that all of this is causing. Because it's like they're just they're trying to strip us, or just I think this is more of a distraction for the twenty twenty two elections and twenty twenty four elections, but they're making it to where you can't talk about anything so that they can continue to push these things through like redistricting and you know taking away courses in in schools and colleges so that people don't have the information that they need to fight against what's happening. And they would rather have a populace that's uneducated, that knows nothing about the history of this country than to actually work on the injustices that have prevailed since this country's founding Mm -hmm. and so that's just one of the things we do we have like working groups that all that meet together to discuss strategies um for narrative we have what else we have we have this a stop backlash campaign going on right now that brings together different stakeholders so that they can discuss strategies that they can use within their own areas and it just builds coalitions as well because people who are facing these same issues are able to meet each other and use each other's strategies and build their networks so that they can fight more effectively mm-hmm. yeah. one, uh, one of the programs that i'm mostly involved in is our young scholars program and in that one we recruit black girls and femmes and gender expansive youth who care about researching and solving the intersectional issues that black women and girls have to face because we believe that the best people who are informed about what's going on with black women and girls and femmes are black women, girls and femmes. And so what we do is we take in a cohort each summer and we train them in black feminism intersectional research methods and they use those methods to develop their own research projects as a group 
and they do all the research, they do presentations, they're able to submit the work that they do to journals or to conferences. And we just really help train up this new generation of researchers and leaders who can effectively tackle black girl and feminine issues. And it's just so amazing to be a part of that. I know this summer uh, we had a group that focused on teen pregnancy and their perceptions around that. We had another group that focused on black girls artistic expression and being able to use art as a tool of healing. And another group that focused on perceptions of black women in leadership and how to get more black girls and women involved and in positions of leadership. What else? We got our Under the Black Light web series, which I won, which is an award-winning series. We won an Anthem Award last year. Oh no, we won not an Anthem, a Webby last year. Mm -hmm. And it just brings together again, just different people talking about different issues. It started with the equity gag order stuff, but we have stuff, we have programs that surround like say her name and have people from our mother's network to come and talk about some of the issues that they face since losing their daughters to state sanctioned violence and just a wealth of programming <laughs> that would take probably take this whole interview to explain but we got a lot going on and I'm just so proud to be able to work at a place like this that tackles all these different issues that we're not a single issue kind of organization if we see something going on we're going to try to tackle that if we see that a black woman has been killed or harmed and nobody's talking about it the media isn't talking about it we're going to talk about it we're going to put it on your radar we're going to convene some people so that we can get things done and it's just such an honor to be a part of a team that's just so dedicated to seeing our people liberated <laughs> yeah yeah no i i was i was glad to see that you are a part of the team over there at african-american policy forum like you said uh there's so many different uh campaigns and so much work is being done over there it really would take you know saying a, a couple of interviews to to like cover all of that but it's, it's all great. And I encourage people to, you know what I'm saying, here in Arkansas and anywhere to uh, go to the site and just, you know what I'm saying, check out all the different videos and the different webinars and uh, the work that's being done and try to implement that same type of work into our, our communities because there's so much going on. And right now, you know what I'm saying, Arkansas is about to get into the, uh, by the time this podcast will be released, we'll be getting into the fiscal session uh, mm. and uh, these things are uh, a lot of times about appropriation and taking care of uh, this and that with these committees but they're going to have a vote to, to go beyond the fiscal session you know uh, regular duties what they do and to present bills that I don't know if they didn't get a chance to present them during the legislative session or now they've been inspired to, to write something new but we know that there, there will be another attack on um, black history, civil rights, and critical race theory during this fiscal session. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they'll be taking a vote. And I know that they'll be submitting bills probably as the first day of the fiscal session talking about uh, you know, critical race theory again and how we're going to teach. And they already had an attack early on in the 2021 session through the... Uh, you know what I'm saying? The trainings and the workshops that they're banning from the state agencies now. 
so I forgot the name of that bill, but you know what I'm saying? And then they talked about critical race theory too, and they, you know, didn't push that bill through. But everybody is so confused when you hear that word critical race theory because uh, people I work with know that that's not even being taught in these schools. Exactly. <laughs> and, <laughs> but the first thing they want to say is, we're doing this for the children. I'm like, what are y'all doing for the children? The ch nobody's come on and said, hey, we tired of learning about critical race theory. Can you, you know, <laughs> can y'all present some bills to kill that, uh, kill these lesson plans, these curriculums? So it's it's just crazy that you know saying what uh, the focus a lot of times shifts on in the legislative sessions with our elected uh, officials, and uh, but I'm glad to see, like I say, African American policy forum doing that work and continue to educate people and helping people fight for liberation. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, with it being Black History Month. Uh, you know, I, I got to just ask you, you know what I'm saying? Um, I, I know we're going to be pushing the campaign out there on why Black history is important 365 days of the year, not just in February, but there's so much Black history is American history. And, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? We have to, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with highlighting in February, but, you know what I'm saying? We have to, you know, continue to tell our stories and continue to educate people on what's going on. There's a lot of truth and racial healing and reconciliation that's taking place. You know, there's a lot of uh, people who have just been coping but haven't been able to heal because of the trauma. And so, um, and we and we see it all the time too, because you know, a lot of people, you know, aren't able to look at certain films because they haven't been able to deal with mm -hmm. trauma from the past. And they, you know, saying they can't watch, read certain books and turn off the news because they're tired of seeing another uh, police murder, you know what I'm saying? It's more corruption, all this type of stuff. But uh, in short, could you just tell me why Black history is important and we need to talk about it and, and, and not only talk about it, but talk about it truthfully? Yeah, so like you said, black like you said before, Black history is American history. And I know that whenever there are debates about why we need a Black History Month, if it is American history. I mean, we need it because the history of marginalized people in this country is often swept under the rug. And if people don't know what contributions people of color, Black people, Indigenous people, queer people, if they don't know, you know, the, the contributions that we've had and that we've contributed to the country, then they just feel like we're just over here complaining about nothing, you know? And... <laughs> It's just, it's so important that we actually utilize a critical race lens to observe the things that have happened in this country. If you don't understand how racist real estate associations were back in the day, you don't understand why Black people can't live in this area. You know, like if you don't understand how white veterans were able to utilize GI bills to purchase homes for themselves Why black veterans weren't able to do that. You don't understand why we have like, there's no equity in home ownership. You know, if you're not allowed to understand the legacies of slavery, you don't understand how or why the black people continue to face discrimination to this day and why some of those same perceptions 
are held generationally. Mm -hmm. I heard something yesterday that that somebody on TikTok said actually that they were saying like if if black people can understand that we have certain responses to things in our lives because of what our ancestors dealt with, if we have carried trauma generationally, then why isn't why isn't prejudice and racism something that's seen that could be passed down generationally? So if we're dealing with the trauma of having to have those perceptions and that constant, you know, marginalization and the lack of opportunity, the lack of resources, and then being blamed for being criminals and just having this blanket of we're just undeserving of these things cast over us, what are they passing down generationally? Because it's not the truth. It's not an honest account of what has happened in this country. It's not even solutions to how we can move forward in a way that's equitable for people of all races and all backgrounds. And we need to have that history and understand that history. And it's not just so that, you know, white people can do better. It's so that our kids can have an understanding of who they are and what their ancestors survived and what their ancestors were before they got here because they didn't start off enslaved. And having that understanding of history is so important to everybody, not just, you know, the black and white kids, like, because we've seen, you know, white supremacy and racism is something that isn't just particular to white people because those things are, you know, internalized by people of different races and they can perpetuate some of those same harms. So understanding where those harms started mm -hmm. is critical to understanding how to fix those things. Most definitely, most definitely. Uh, white supremacy has been ingrained in uh, this American culture. And so, you know, we have to continue to tell stories and you know what I'm saying liberate the minds of the people man because uh, if we're not looking at things through a racial equity lens and we're not um you know pushing for social change you know we continue to pattern to go down that same pattern and things don't get fixed so we gotta have a truthful history yo we, we almost about to get out of here i know i've been holding you for a minute but i gotta as a, as a fellow artist, I got to give you a shout out. You know what I'm saying? I know you're a poet as well. You've been published. And uh, I just want to, you know, just share some information about, you know what I'm saying, the artistic, poet, poetic side of yourself and where people, you know what I'm saying, can find your work there. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> I, I don't even know how long I've been a poet. I just remember one day uh, going through a Reader's Digest at my grandparents house and finding like a little one of those little advertising cars that like talked about a poetry context so I remember just making up something and sending it in and then getting a letter back saying that they were going to put it in a book and I was like all of nine or ten when this got started but oh, really? <laughs> right <laughs> and, and, I, and I wish I wish I knew where those books were to this day because it was just like this was before like we had the internet but it hadn't really taken off you know to where you could just enter something online this was like you have to mail stuff in and then wait to get a letter back kind of situation <laughs> and uh but since then like I I guess that's when I realized like I have a voice in 
like even though I might not feel heard in my immediate environment it's people out there in the world who do care or relate to what I have to say and so after that you know I just I kept writing kept you know sending in my little my little nine ten year old poems of whatever I could come up with during that time I can't even remember what they were about I'm sure just like what it was like riding a bike in a neighborhood or something like that but they found it interesting but it wasn't until I want to say maybe like five or six years ago that I got the confidence to publish as an adult you Mm -hmm. know because when you're a kid you're way less or way more fearless than you are when life hits you (laughs) and so I wasn't by the time I was grown I wasn't brave anymore I was like ain't nobody gonna care what I gotta say you know but one thing um Toni Morrison said before like she wrote what she wanted to read and when and I journaled a lot and a lot of a lot of the times my journal entries would just turn into poems because I there was no sentence that I could put that in that would make sense to me and I just took a risk one day and start you know submitting again and lots and lots of rejections later (laughs) I finally um got asked to have a piece put in IO Literary Journal and one of them was a poem that I had written from my daughter or no I got two put in there actually I wrote one about depression because like focusing on mental health is something that's really important to me and articulating the feelings that you feel when you're having a mental health episode is something that I knew people could relate to and I wanted to get that narrative out there from a black woman's perspective and um the other poem was just something that I wrote to my daughter my feelings of motherhood and how having her in my life changed me and made me want to be a better person and the other thing that got published which actually got published in the physical copy was um it was an essay that I had written called um we need a divorce and it was just about black Americans needing to divorce white America or like divorce itself from what we know of as America because we it's not benefiting us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, trying to propose a solution for us to get our own stuff together so that we don't have to be dependent upon these systems that weren't ever built to serve us. And after that got published, then... I started writing more because I was confident. <laughs> mm-hmm. And after that, but like with when it comes to the literary world, it's it's like kind of that erasure that a lot of black people face in general, and where it feels like nobody really cares about what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And so like a lot of the journals I was submitting to were white-led journals and talked about white things so I knew that my stuff was never going to fit into that so I just took all the stuff that I had been writing over the years and put it into a collection and published it myself in my book called talking to myself Mm -hmm. because that's what I view my poetry as just conversations that I had with myself that I felt like I couldn't have with anybody else and I published it one day like I literally was just like let me hurry up and put this in here now because if I don't do it now I'm gonna be too scared to do it and I'm never gonna have a book and I just did it on a whim and 
so many people related to it and felt like, you know, I had touched on some stuff that they had been feeling that they hadn't given voice to. And even people in my family who I thought were going to be upset about what I was writing were like, yeah, I've been there before. And so it was just such a great experience to get that kind of feedback because I don't view myself as a super popular person that people are just clamoring around to hear what I have to say or see what I have to write, you know? So the reception that it got was way more than I ever could have imagined. I thought I was going to sell like two books, (laughs) if that. And I don't even know how many I've sold at this point, but yeah, it's just been great to be recognized for that. Uh, that's that's great, and you know, uh, I, I find writing and just artistic expression to be therapeutic uh, a lot of times for me because, like you say, your book's called Talking to Myself. A lot of times, you know, that's just uh, an outlet to get things off your chest and say what's on your mind. So you know, what I'm saying you don't have to hold it in. And I encourage the youth a lot of times to say, hey, just write about it, sing about it, rap about it, or, you know, say, create some music to to your emotions so you can get some of this off your chest and you're not walking around dealing with it all the time and, and help to liberate mm-hmm. yourself. And so uh, that's, that's powerful. I know in the episode, we're going to add some links and ways to, for people to check out your work because uh, we, we definitely love to support artists in, uh, in, in my community, that's 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 what I believe, man. And so, man, this has been a great interview. It's been a great interview, and I learned so much about you. Uh, but we get to the end of things, and uh, we got a segment we call "Unplug Your Microwave," where we step outside the microwave society of thinking. And you know, some of the people think that we're gonna change it all by one rally, one march, one protest, one tweet, one Facebook status. Uh, and we know that we have in order to some change may occur in the short term, but we know we got to play the long game with a lot of this stuff because we, uh, we it's a strategy to what we have to do with this work that we're doing. And so my question is to you is, you know what I'm saying, you know, we talked about a lot of different things, but the, the, the word that comes up to my uh, mind is liberation and, uh, you know what I'm saying, change. And so with the work that you're doing so that we're able to sustain it, in particular, to making things better for the youth and, uh, you know what I'm saying, in, in our society. What are some of the long-term things that we have to uh, be, that we have to remember that we have to do to make sure that this work's sustainable, that we liberate minds and liberate people to be who they are. And uh, we're looking at things through a racial equity lens where this, this change may not come today but you know saying on down the line for generations for our children for the for grandchildren what do we need to be looking at how do we have long-term sustainable change and uh and liberating our people the one thing that comes to mind for me is this quote by Gwendolyn Brooks where she says we are each other's harvest we are each other's business we are each other's magnitude and bond And when I think about how we can create sustainable solutions and a liberated world that is equitable for everybody, I think about how we have to be each other's business and stop thinking that 
whatever they got going on don't have anything to do with me. Because if my neighbor's in a domestic violence situation and the police are going to be getting called out to their home or their husband or, or wife or whoever is the aggressor in the situation has a weapon, you know, that's going to bring that that's dangerous, not just for the per the people living in that home. That's dangerous for our community. Increased police presence in our community is bad. You know, the potential of like our kids not being able to go outside and play because something might pop off and they could get hurt. You know, that's my business. It's my business to know if my neighbor down the street doesn't have food in the house and can't find employment because if they can't find employment in their trying to make you know a fast decision you know that could be my home or my car broken into or it could be the loss of their life you know and we have to care about each other if we if we don't decide that we are each other's business that what happens to my neighbor happens to me by extension it's not much that we can do and that extends out to voting because a lot of people feel like, well, it's not, the system is rigged anyway. Why does it matter? If all of this matters, <laughs> all of it is connected. And if we don't see our connectedness to one another, it's going to be hard to build anything sustainable. Like if we can't get mutual aid funds, if nobody cares enough to donate money to their neighbors who are struggling or to a fund for a program for youth. If nobody cares enough to get the kids there, you know, that's just gonna fail. So we have to care. We have to be each other's business. And that's the only way things are gonna be sustainable because as long as we are dealing with a majority of people who's like, that ain't got nothing to do with me, we gonna be chugging along for a long time. Facts, facts, facts. That's the truth right there, man. We gotta we gotta take uh ownership in our community as a whole holistic approach. And uh, you know what I'm saying, like you said, be uh be each other's business, take care of each other, man. You know what I'm saying? When, when one of us uh climb, we gotta lift somebody else up behind us. So you know what I'm saying? Uh I definitely agree with everything you said. Man, it's been a great interview on the folded chair. Um before we get out of here, this is Black History Month, this is February, but do you have any announcements, any events, or any, any information that you need to share that we can have this published on the episode? Hmm, not really any announcements. Uh, my Use Your Words workshop series is going to be having its final meeting on February the 19th. We're going to be bringing it back probably like around April or so, but like our final meeting will be on the on February 19th so if anybody would like to sign up for that they can email me at smurphywashington at gmail.com other than that um, if there are any organizations who are looking to facilitate workshops to their youth that get their youth inspired to I don't know, use their voice for social change to do some writing and some storytelling. Like, let us know. <laughs> Visit us at murphywashingtonconsulting.com to see the services that we offer now. Um, what else? You can buy my book, Talking to Myself, on Amazon. You might have to type in Talking to Myself Poetry for it to pop up, though. Okay. 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 Ok
And yeah, I think that's all I got. Oh, and always follow AAPF on all platforms at AA Policy Forum on Twitter and Instagram, the African American Policy Forum on Facebook, and check us out at AAPF.org to see all of the programs and initiatives that I did not have the time to explain today. <laughs> Already, that's what I'm talking about right there. Dropping a plethora of information for us before we end the show. Hey, I, uh, I like Gwendolyn Brooks too. It's one of my favorite writers. So I'm gonna just I'm gonna I'm gonna quote her real quick. You know what I'm saying? I think this interview was nice. I'm gonna just say we real cool. I love Gwendolyn Brooks. Great interview, Miss uh, Murphy Washington. Thank you for joining us on the Folded Chair Podcast, powered by the Arkansas Public Policy <laughs> Panel. Until next time, peace. Peace. Thanks for having me. <laughs> right.